0: Well, good morning. I'm excited to begin a new series together through Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. And so, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to look at the first chapter together this morning. First Thessalonians, read chapter 1, verse 1 to 10. This is the word of God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers from the wrath to come. This is the word of God. One of my mentors in ministry was a huge prankster he was known particularly for his prank phone calls. So he, he loved to call me pretending to be some guy with a New Yorker accent looking for Showney's Shrimp Restaurant. And would just pretend to call and look for this restaurant and go, no, I found you on Google. And would just try to keep the gag going. But what he never seemed to realize is that One, prank calls are far less effective when you do the same gag over and over and over again for years. And in the days of caller ID, when he's in my phone and I know who's calling, it it really takes a lot of the gag away. But he would continue to do it month after month, year after year, just call at random times looking for this supposed world-class seafood place just to see what I would do. And, and even aside from the caller ID, the familiar pranks and our close bond were a dead giveaway of who was calling me. And while Paul's letter to the Thessalonians isn't a prank call, it does share that sort of warm familiarity that I shared with my mentor. This, this sort of bond that you know who's writing and who's talking to you, even if you didn't have his name on the front of it. There is little doubt that Paul wrote this. It has his form, his tone, his theology, and it even recounts a sort of uniquely warm relationship he shared with this church. Even some of the most critical scholars say, wow, this really sounds like Paul. And I'm like, well... Because Paul wrote it, right? It's very clear that this is from the hands of the Apostle Paul. And the Thessalonian letters are actually some of his earliest written in the late 40s or early 50s AD. So not too long uh, into uh, the early church. And we learn that he writes these letters along with his companions Silvanus and Timothy to the church that is in the city of Thessalonica, And now, you wouldn't know it if you went to Thessalonica today, but at one time in Paul's day, Thessalonica was an influential city with a population of about 200,000. Which, again, to us doesn't sound huge, but in the ancient days, that's a massive city. It had a port that ran through it, a busy highway, so there was all kinds of trade and economics. There was all kinds of travelers and and immigrants in and out of it. One commentator compared ancient Thessalonica to the New York City of its day, and it really was. I mean, it's an influential city. Every bit of trade probably came in and out of its port at some point. And so these are believers living in the cultural center of the Roman Empire at the time. And he writes to a church full of people, people just like us with all kinds of needs and questions. These aren't perfect people, nor is this a perfect church, but Paul opens on a positive note, doesn't he? He opens with a, heart prayer, with a heartfelt prayer of thanksgiving that's meant to serve as a model for us. Think of this almost as if the Apostle Paul wrote his prayer request list down for this church. That's what we get here in this first chapter. And this is sort of a model for us. We see in this passage seven prayer priorities from the Apostle Paul. Seven things that we should make a priority to pray because the Apostle Paul made them a priority to pray. First, Paul prays for grace that strengthens. We should pray for grace that strengthens. Notice verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, if you've ever read the Apostle Paul before, this is pretty standard, Paul, isn't it? This is how he opens his letters, and we're often tempted just to gloss over it. But it should tell us something that the first thing Paul says in just about every one of his letters is he prays grace to you and peace. This is far more than simply a greeting. If you remember last week when we were in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we saw that grace is both pardon from sin and power to live for God. Grace is both what sets us in right relationship with God, but it's also what presses us onward in our relationship with God. So Paul is asking that the grace of God would continue what it started in them. And he asks that peace or shalom be with them. And this sort of shalom isn't simply a quiet walk out in nature. This is a sort of wholeness, fullness. I ask that this fullness of life be yours. And he says, I write to you, church, God's people, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had seen the grace of God bring them to faith, he had seen the abundant life and shalom they were experiencing in Jesus. And now he prays that grace will keep them and strengthen them for the life of faith. Because the Thessalonians coming to faith didn't come without pushback or persecution. I want you to hold your place in First Thessalonians and find Acts chapter 17. That's to the left. So turn back to the left, to Acts chapter 17, because there we actually see the birth of the Thessalonian church. You get to see it come to be there in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 17. Look at this with me. Here we see Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Look at this. Now, when they had passed through Ampholius and Apollonia, man, I never get some of these cities right, right? They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So Paul does what he normally does, comes into the synagogue, opens up the scripture, and they have a huge Bible study (laughs) through the Old Testament with these Jews about how Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophecies. And then look what happens next. Look at this. Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. (laughs) That's how this all started with a mob in the middle of this city. This church was birthed. There was this huge resistance from the culture to them from day one. And Paul, knowing this, says they need grace and peace. He opened, reminding them that the grace that saved them is also the grace that they must stand firm in. Paul prays first for grace. For ourselves, think a little bit, what do we pray for first when we think about our faith family? When we think about others in this body, what's the first thing we often pray for? And Paul confesses here that ahead of everything else, what we all need is a whole lot of grace. A whole lot of God's pardon and God's power to move us forward. And this is just the first verse. Paul doesn't stop here. He prays second for faith that labors. We should pray for grace that strengthens, and we should pray for faith that labors. Look at verse 2, back in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice first how emphatic Paul is in this prayer. He gives thanks always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. This is a sort of emphatic thanksgiving. And what prompts this in him, verse three, their work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope that's in our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Paul overflows in thanksgiving for their faith, love, and hope. He knew that none of that could be produced naturally by them, but that God gets the credit. He recognized that God was at work in them, and what a way to describe God's work in them. Some people would spend a lot of time trying to separate out the the faith and the love and the hope, but really all of these are so intertwined that they really just describe their Christian life, what true faith looks like. He says, I thank you, God, for their work of faith, not simply their mental belief or their theoretical trust, but that they had what the Apostle James commended, faith that works, he says, on the second side, their labor of love, a toil done out of love for Jesus. He says, think of their faith almost like a home-cooked meal where they've slaved away in the kitchen in order to prepare this meal for their family that they love. Or for some of our guys, think of the times that you go and you work hard on that house project for your wife because you love her and you love the family, and so you do this labor of love. They were laboring out of their love for Jesus and love for one another, and then he says their steadfastness of hope, that they had a rock-solid, rooted hope that wasn't shaken by the presence of trouble. Paul looked at the Thessalonian church, and he saw more than their needs or their trials or even their sins and struggles he saw what God was doing under the surface. And it led him to emphatic thankfulness. When we look at others, what do we see? When we pray for others, do we think first and primarily about their external trials or about their internal transformation? Do we notice even in others their faith and love and hope? And when we see them, how do we respond? Do we give thanks for that when we see it among one another? Paul was thankful for how the church was in the present. And he also looked back at how the church began. third, Paul prays for power from the word. He says they need grace that strengthens, a faith that labors, and they need power from the word. Look look at verse 4. Look at this. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our, great, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. There's so much here. This is incredibly rich because Paul overflows with thankfulness for the power of the gospel in the life of the church. The gospel came in power in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. The gospel wasn't simply preached, but the power of God was at work in it. Friends, there's a warning here. There's a warning here. You can, you can hear God's word and yet not experience his power. He says, but hey, the word was preached, and these folks experienced both the word And power, because so often people come to the Bible seeking simply to be informed rather than to be transformed. They come to read the Word when really the Word is meant to read us and give us a new heart, a new nature to walk in. And he says that not only was the Word preached, but the power of God was at work in it. And he says that this is how the Thessalonians could realize that God had chosen them because of his work. Among them, because the word and power was there. And this wasn't simply about an experience. So many people think about power, and when they talk about the Holy Spirit, it always seems like emotion or experience is what they want to highlight. Whereas what Paul is describing here is a sort of new nature. The transformation of these people is the sign that the Spirit Was at work. They had a nature that had full conviction or full confidence in the truth of God's word. Look over at chapter 2, verse 13. Look at this. And we also thank God constantly for this that when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the words of men, but as what it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers or back in chapter 1 verse 5 and 6 really shows us a bit more of what this transformation ends up looking like look at verse 5 at the end of verse 5 there you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and of the lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the holy spirit That the word and power creates a new nature that receives the word of God in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And it's a new nature that causes people to imitate the Lord and to imitate his people. A life-changing transformation that lasts, not simply an emotional high that lasts till the end of the day. Sometimes people think spirit and they're all excited. They got all this emotion and friends, it gets them to lunch and that's it. Whereas the true work of the Spirit brings about life-changing transformation that goes well beyond that that day or that moment or that gathering. This is meant to be an ongoing aspect of the Word of God among us as it's proclaimed and received. As Romans 12.2 talks about the renewal of our mind in order to live as a sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. And that takes supernatural power. And when was the last time we prayed for the word of God to be met with the power of God among us? And I think it's interesting to note, Paul is three requests in and still hasn't gotten to the needs right in front of them. He still hasn't gotten to the personal needs that might be going on around this church that is in trouble. Paul sees that there are things much more important than the moment or the trial therein, that grace Faith and power are needs that transcend the present moment they might be in or even things that might be to come. But Paul does get to the concerns in front of them. He prays for grace that strengthens, faith that labors, power from the word, and forth. He prays for endurance in affliction. Endurance in affliction. Look at verse 6 again. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. To be a Christian cost these people something. We saw how they were treated in Acts 17, how they treated Paul and the Thessalonians were experiencing the same sort of persecution, and it was coming from all sides. This affliction was a threat to their lives by people they were close to. They were marginalized and minimized. They had their lives threatened. This was a deep and difficult affliction. They recognized what many in the modern world have forgotten, that there is no follower of the crucified Savior who is exempt from the afflictions of life. That to follow a crucified Savior means we must take up a cross of affliction. Life will be difficult. Following him will be tough. And Paul was thankful that in the midst of it, they held fast to the word, that they were enduring affliction. I want us to think about our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now, meeting under threat of their lives. And that's not just happening there, it's around the world. And friends, as we think about them, what do we pray for as they're experiencing suffering and persecution We pray for relief, yes, comfort, yes, for the affliction to pass, absolutely. But more than that, Paul prays for these suffering Christians, for them to endure in the middle of it. Because let me tell you this, endurance is more important than comfort. Long-term endurance is more important than comfort, because let me tell you something, it's better to endure with your faith than to be comforted out of it. Because you can receive comfort and leave Jesus behind. But he said they need to endure in it and keep Jesus till the end. Paul prayed for these people to have endurance in their affliction. But he also prays for more to be there in the midst of their suffering. In fact, Paul prays for them fifth to be examples in suffering. Paul prays for examples in suffering. And this is so countercultural. Look what he says verse 6 and 7 again. There's something that leaps off the page. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. As they endured this persecution, it wasn't just for them. It was an example for others. Let me give you some perspective here. Nothing you go through is ever just for you. Nothing that is happening to you that you've ever suffered through is ever purely for you. Because oftentimes, God takes you through the fire so you can walk others through it or encourage others that are walking through it. Look what Paul says elsewhere, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we we ourselves have been comforted by God. He says, God ultimately gives us comfort that we might comfort others. That as these people endured, they were becoming imitators like Paul and the apostles, and they were becoming examples to the believers, it says, in Macedonia and Achaia, which were the providences to the north and to the south. The people around them would see their example and hold fast. Do we pray in the midst of our sufferings, whatever they might be, that we'll be examples to others of how to endure? So often we're so concerned about this. We, we have this very therapeutic culture that's all about, I want comfort for me right now. I don't care what anybody else experiences or goes through or thinks. And yet the, God's word would correct us to say your suffering, whatever it is, isn't just for you. You might be experiencing something in order to comfort somebody all the way down or all the way on the other side of the room from you. Because as a faith family, we're meant to walk beside one another. And God's comfort to you may actually also be his comfort for someone else through you. God gives comfort that will endure an affliction, that we will be examples in suffering. But he also longs sixth for us to be witnesses to the world. Pray for witness to the world be an example, endure, but also realize that we have a witness to say to the world. Look at verse 8. Look at this. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We learn that their faith wasn't simply going forth in their little region, but he says it's going everywhere. And it's going forth in such a way that they have no need to say anything else. And he says that they can recognize this because they gave such a kind reception to the apostles. Remember, Just the presence of Paul preaching in this place caused an uproar. And these folks were having him over for lunch. (laughs) And because their worship had changed. That what marked them as a true believer was who and what they embraced and accepted, but also what they worshiped. If they were to put a headline, it would go everywhere. These folks had embraced the apostles who had a death sentence on their life, and they no longer worshipped idols but the living and true God. What a transformation. The idols in their house that might have been in all these rooms were crushed and broken. They no longer went to these various gatherings together. Do we pray that our testimony will be a witness to the watching world Friends, let me tell you something. There are other people who are not believers who are watching how you endure in suffering. They're watching what you do and how you stand because you talk about how great this Savior is, but why don't you walk in that? Is it clear that we have turned from the idols of the world to serve the God of the Word? What would the world say? Would the world say we look just like everybody else with the same priorities and the same things? Because that's really all worship is, really, in a grand sense, is what your priorities are, right? And he says, would our priorities look just like the idols of the world or like the God of the word? What would the world say? Paul looks within and sees their need for grace that strengthens, faith that labors the power of the word in their life. He looks around at their current affliction and says, hey, I want to pray for your endurance, for examples, and for it to be a witness to the world. And finally, Paul winds down his prayer with this. Pray for the return of Jesus. Pray for the return of Jesus. He looks forward, doesn't he? And he closes verse 10. And to wait For his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He closes this opening prayer by pointing toward the second coming of Jesus. In fact, as we work through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians together this fall, we'll see that the return of Jesus is actually one of the central themes of the two letters, appearing in one way or another just about every chapter of the two letters. And we'll learn there was all sorts of confusion that the Thessalonians had regarding Jesus' coming. But Paul doesn't get to those yet. Paul Paul isn't concerned about that right away. He actually isn't ready to get in and pick some theological fight with them. He starts by praying for them and by pointing them toward what their proper response should be. He says, wait. Not calculate the date or go and listen on, on, on that's out there at various people who claim to know when the day or hour is. Let me tell you, they don't. Just going to ruin that little thing for you, right? And not to just sit around either. We often think of waiting as sitting around, but he's, he has this idea of waiting with expectation. You know, when, when you're running last minute and, the parents are com- and your parents are coming to get you, Parents, you understand this. You say, wait by the door for me. You don't mean sit on the couch and just sit there on your phone. No, they mean be by the door because I got to get you to this now. That's what he's meaning. Wait with expectation. Wait, not not sit on the couch in your jammies and go, well, I'll get ready when they get there. No, 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 no. Be ready, clothes on, backpack, whatever you need, ready to go. We got to get to this now says wait with that kind of expectation because help was going to come from heaven not from the world around them and it was going to be the one who was raised from the dead and he would be the one who would deliver from the wrath to come the ultimate hope for the suffering Thessalonians was not in political aspirations a new king in this area wasn't going to change much And their hope was not in trying to win the aspirations of the world. No, their hope was in Jesus Christ. And let me tell you this, that isn't simply the case for the Thessalonians. It's also the case for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you're going through, Jesus remains your only hope. And He can do in you what He did in the people in the Thessalonian church because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can turn your life upside down and turn you from the worship of vain idols to the service of the one true God. You can have your sins forgiven so that you no longer have to fear the wrath of God to come, but come to him as a child before the Father. He can give purpose to to what seems to be purposeless suffering because only a risen and resurrected Christ can truly make sense of the darkest tomb in your life. Jesus Christ has come. God in the flesh to live the perfect life that you and I could never live. And he died on the cross, the death that you and I deserve to die for our sins. And he rose again from the dead on the third day to declare that the debt is paid and that hope awaits any and all who turn to him in faith and repentance to be their Savior and their Lord. Our number one prayer priority is that people around us know Jesus. And the Bible says that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He doesn't say, get your life right first, then call upon him. He doesn't say, make sure you're in 50 Bible studies, baptized, coming to church 50 times during the week, and then call upon him. No, he says right where you are in your mess, in your questions, in your uncertainty, call upon him and he will meet you right where you are and save you and begin a work in you that he promises to finish. And Paul has made clear for us that our need for Jesus should never be simply a, well, I've checked that box, I got my ticket to heaven. No, 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 no that this should be a lifelong experience and a lifelong confession. In fact, that's what we actually confess in the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper isn't a meal for the sinless, but rather a meal for the broken and the beggar who have been counted perfect and accepted only through Jesus. It's not a meal for those trying to earn God's approval but, or for those trying to go without him. No. It's for those who've given up all her hope of trying to earn God's grace, and who have received it freely, based not on their own merit but on Jesus' merit. It's for the thankful, those thankful for the broken blood and the, for the broken body and the shed blood of our perfect Savior. And through it, we're told we proclaim His death until He comes. Let's stand together, and I want to ask that we would begin to put this text into practice. That in this time, as we respond in worship, that we actually would pray together for one another. And not just pray for the surface needs around us, those are important. But to pray for grace, for power, for faith, for endurance, for examples, for our witness, and to cry what the Apostle John cries at the end of the book of Revelation, to come, Lord Jesus, come. And to commit to pray together in all sorts of ways, and to even, maybe today, take your first step of faith, to say to the person next to you, I want to know Jesus, and to call upon Him right where you are, to pray with them, and or if, you, or if they're not sure what to do, to talk to, to one of us after and to pray and to seek the Lord just out of the heart that he is doing in you, calling upon Jesus as our only hope. Let's pray together. Father God, as we prepare to worship you, I ask that you would do what only you can do, that you would draw people to yourself, that you would in this moment have us to commit to pray for more than just the surface needs we often share, but to pray for the work that's going on inside of each other. To pray that others around us would endure and be examples and witnesses to the world. Ask and pray that you would cause us to change the way we pray for one another. And I also pray for any within the sound of my voice, here or otherwise, that if they have never accepted, if they're still trying to earn their way to you, that they would cry out that you have paid it all and all to you we owe. Sin may have left a crimson stain, but you wash white as snow. So we ask as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper that you'd be honored in our worship as we sing to you, that you'd be honored in all that we do together in this gathering.
1: Pray this on Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus faded off, all to Him I owe sin, had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow.
0: Supper is given to remind us of just that, that Jesus has truly paid it all and done it all, and we bring nothing uh, to the table. I encourage you to grab uh, the, the elements that you came to make sure to be careful how you open it. <laughs> we were, we've been working on that, right? And encourage you to take the bread. And here's what 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Two quick things before we close. First, I uh, thank you again for your giving, for the way that you give. There's, again, baskets at the doors. Then there'll be somebody back there if you want to give, particularly to the food pantry ministry, which, is gonna, which does incredible work. Uh, That's a help. Those around us in needs, whether here in this church body or outside. And let me tell you about one cool thing I was involved in. I'm going to post a picture in our Facebook group, or I can send it to you if you're curious. But I had a family all the way from Texas call me a few weeks ago, and they brought their whole family in to stay at LBL. And the Lord has such worked in this family they had nine people come to faith in Christ within the last year or so they all wanted to go get baptized in the lake out there so we baptized nine people yesterday from texas colorado the east coast everywhere and they're going back to get plugged into local churches there well they'll serve but let me let me encourage you with this that god is at work (laughs) i know sometimes it can be discouraging with covid with everything that's going on right now but let me just encourage you god truly is at work this family was a key example and uh, it's just incredible to see how the Lord was, was at work in these folks. So, exciting news. I'll show that photo later because I'm sure some folks will be, would, would love to see that. But let me close with a benediction, a blessing for the road. 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.